You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, uh, glad you're here, and this is uh, the first of five uh, discussions here about Jesus and various relationships that Jesus is involved in. Um, some of you know that I've done a number of things over the years here. The last thing I did was back in the fall, yes, uh, with um, literature, gospel in literature, and I've done things with various philosophers, theologians, and other things. And uh, I was talking to Gil about this, and he said, do you know anything about Jesus? <laughs> Is this a trick question? No, he didn't ask me that. Uh, but he said, well, look, why don't you do something uh, about the life of Christ? And one of the reasons why is that I'm going with Gil in June with the Advent group uh, to Israel, and he thought it would be interesting if those who are also going to go on that trip would be part of this class, and we could already start thinking about some of those places and events that occurred there uh, in, in Jesus' life. Now, I, uh, I spent a semester in Jerusalem in 2011, uh, most of the time in Jerusalem, even though we went from north to south to east and west, all up and down Israel, and it's not that big of a country, by the way. It's really not. You can get around pretty quickly and things, but it's very, very dramatically different from north to south. And I just absolutely loved it. It was greater than what I thought it was going to be. It was weirder. It was more difficult. It was more complicated, um, more taxing than I thought it was going to be. But it is, a, it is an extraordinary experience. And, uh, you know, I, I had studied these sort of things a lot in my life and, uh, and, and knew them theoretically, had images of them. But when you go there and you see the actual experiences, the events, the places, and so on, it added a depth to it that was tremendous. And so Gil and I were talking about this series and what way can I here talk about various relationships that Jesus had that might even enhance that, that possible experience. Well, and I'm starting it off today with Jesus' encounters with evil. Next Sunday will be with the scribes and the Pharisees. The following Sunday will be with women, Jesus' encounters with women. Then after Easter, it will be Jesus' encounter with the sick, and then Jesus' encounter with death. Yeah. These are all pretty significant events. Uh, in the life of Jesus, and they'll help us understand who Jesus is. Just a few parenthetical comments about before I really get into the substance of all this. Uh, you know, Jesus suffers, uh, this may sound somewhat blasphemous, which is risky in a church to do, uh, but for me to say this, but uh, of overexposure. Jesus suffers a little bit of overexposure. Uh, people have, you know, been talking about him, thinking about him, writing about him, and they think they got him figured out. And there are all kinds of Jesuses. You know, there's the Jesus for this group, for that group, this attitude, this you know, kind of disposition. Uh, he is all over the map, and we've got all kinds of images of Jesus. And I think uh, a lot of those are mistaken, by the way. And it's so, so important for us to let the New Testament inform us about who Jesus is rather than what do we want Jesus to be and then go and find out what that is for our own selves. And so that's always been the, the burden, always has been the burden. In fact, if you think about it, you know, we have four Gospels and you've studied them and you know they're quite different. They really are. 
uh, we're going to look at some of those differences here. Jesus comes across a little differently. Well, one of the reasons I think that is so healthy for the church to admit that there are a variety of perspectives about Christ in the New Testament is that Jesus was incredibly, what's the right word? I don't, I don't know if I have the right word. Let me try some secondary words. Maybe I'll stumble onto the right one. Mysterious, complex, incomprehensible, without stereotype, without analogy, that Jesus had such a richness and vastness and everything that he did and everything that he talked about that it is appropriate, I think, to have multiple ways to present that because they all fit some vital dimension of who Jesus is. And so we need to let Jesus be complicated. We need to let him be in something beyond that we can just sort of slip into some sort of easily managed image of who he is. And one of these is what we... Uh, we're going to talk about this morning, and Jesus' encounter with evil. Uh, a few uh, textual sort of things about it. Uh, most of the occurrences of Jesus' encounter with evil occur around Galilee, or it's called the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Uh, w the last week of Jesus, when he's into Jerusalem, there is no account in the New Testament of any direct encounter with evil, which has always been a little mystifying to me that that's that, is, is that case. Also, uh, usually in the accounts when Jesus confronts evil, it follows a healing miracle. There's a healing miracle, and I'll talk about some of those are, and then there is this encounter with evil. Now, as that's sort of laid out, and that's true with all three of the gospel, uh, of the synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it, it sort of gives the impression that Jesus is going around in healing, and then he has these encounters with destruction with evil. Jesus brings light and then all of a sudden there is these encounters with darkness. That Jesus was in a combat and he truly was. Jesus was in a confrontation with these forces of evil. Now, quite honestly, if you've really studied a lot of these encounters, it's, it's, it's difficult for us to grasp what was going on in all of those. And some of it is that we are, you know, we are children of our time. There probably have been two big ideas that have influenced our culture that have made it quite difficult to understand, I think, the seriousness and severity of Jesus' confrontation with evil. And one of those stems back to a very famous and in many ways very, very good philosopher named Rene Descartes, who died in the year 1650. Descartes was very influential in Western civilization, and he came up with this concept that there are only really two things in, in the world. Now, of course, there's God, but God's out of the world. But there's only two things. There's mind and matter. Mind is thoughtful, purposive, gives meaning to life. Matter is just something that is extended. It has no inherent meaning to it. It can all be measured and it can be predicted. With that kind of concept, then, what Descartes reasoned and many others from him is that the mind can make complete sense of matter or of the world of that which can be measured and predicted, we can understand it by our scientific insights. So science can understand everything in the world eventually. And a lot of people actually do believe that. And all that stems from this idea that the world out there has no meaning, it's just following mechanistic laws. We make the world meaningful. Now that kind of concept, when it, gets, when it goes to the New Testament, and, or any other parts of the scripture, and it sees miracles and these dramatic encounters with the demons and so on, what they reason is that, well, what we have here is just an unscientific explanation of what's going on with these people. 
What's happening with all these people, even though it's described in these kind of antiquarian, occultic kind of language about demons and convulsing and all that, is really just a, a failure of a good scientific analysis. And so what we need is the mind making sense out of all this. And so what we do, we, we explain away the evil by just saying, well, it's a lack of our own scientific knowledge. Another big, uh, I think, influence in our, our culture that prevents us from truly understanding the depth of these encounters with evil comes from a very influential New Testament theologian named Rudolf Bultmann, who died in the year 1976. In 1974, the English translation came out of a book, he was from Marburg, Germany, uh, called Jesus Christ and Mythology. I remember reading that book, and it was incredibly influential. And it really has shaped a lot of the way people think about the demonic in the Bible. What uh, Bultmann argued is that the era in which the writers of Scripture wrote was informed by what's called a three-tier universe, heaven above, earth, and hell below. That's an antiquated, outdated, disproven scientific view. Nobody thinks that way anymore of a heaven above and a hell below. But the New Testament writers did, and so when they saw things they couldn't explain, it had to come either from heaven or from hell. But now in a modern scientific worldview, we don't look at things that way. So what Bultmann argued is that we have to demythalize the Bible, demythalize it. These accounts about the demonic and Jesus' encounter with Satan there in the wilderness and temptations was unscientific. It was an inaccurate way of describing these encounters with inexplicable forces. And so to really understand what the Bible talks about when it talks about evil, we have to interpret it in a scientific way. And so what we find here are frankly troubled people with all kinds of you know, psychological problems that in an old antiquarian scientific view, that's how you'd interpret, that's a demon. But now what we see is that we just have troubled people. Well. Uh, you know, there are a number of problems with, I think, those kind of viewpoints, but, and I'm not going to go another, but I think the primary problem with those viewpoints, that is, we can scientifically understand and predict and control, we can come up with accurate analyses and manage these sort of problems that came up with, is that it fails to realize just how serious is Jesus's, how serious Jesus's effort was to overcome evil how serious it was that Jesus was concentrating, focused on, exerting all of the power that Jesus had to overcome these forces. It wasn't just that He was asking people to think differently or to calm down. He had actual encounters with diabolical forces. And that helps us understand where God is working in the world. It helps us, I think, come to a better grasp of really the, the, the scope and vastness and power of God's redemptive acts within creation. Of course Christ comes to us and redeems us from our sins. Of course what Christ has done for us is to reconcile us to God. And we become ambassadors, as that great text that was read this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because of these great things. But Jesus was doing something else. It wasn't just healing us wasn't just forgiving us. Jesus was encountering the forces of evil that are diametrically opposed to the force of God. This is part of the redemptive story. 
And to just kind of demythalize that or to interpret in ways in which that kind of dramatic encounter between God and evil uh, is the case, I think it shortchanges the power and the scope of Jesus' redemptive work. And so I try to understand these, even though I have to admit they're complicated, they're difficult. I've not seen things like this, but it is part of what the redemptive story is all about. All right, I have 10 different episodes. I'm not going to be able to look at all 10, but I think there are 10 different episodes in Scripture in which Christ confronts evil and also evil confronts Christ. Now, the first one you may not have thought about, but I think there's a good reason to think of it as evil, and that's at the birth of Christ. If you remember in Matthew, it is said... Uh, that when the Magi came, Herod wanted to find out where uh, the birth of this world Savior, the Messiah, was going to be. And the Magi tricked him. And they went down to Bethlehem, and he, as the text says, was furious or enraged that he did not know. And we find out the reason why he wanted to know is that he wanted to kill him because he alone wanted to be the world savior, the Messiah of these people. And you remember what happened after that. He gave orders to go to Bethlehem and in the surrounding area and kill every boy two years of young or younger. Kill everyone. In a sense, Herod was a mass murderer. He was infuriated. He was enraged, just like a demon. And we'll see some of the cases in which Jesus confronts the diabolical, the, di- the, 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 uh, the demonic, and they are also enraged. They are also furious with God. And I think evil takes over Herod at that point. You could call that political evil. Here's Herod. He wanted to be the God. He wanted to be the Lord of these people. He didn't want a rival. And so what does he do? He kills innocent children. I once thought, I looked up what possibly was the population of Bethlehem. It's a small little town, by the way, uh, at that time. And I came up with the figure. It's, it's not accurate. I mean, it's not really, I guess, can't prove it. It's just a conjecture. But there's probably 30 boys that he killed, two years or younger, 30 of them. Went just down and killed them because he was enraged. Now, the second major episode in which Jesus confronts evil or evil confronts Jesus, by the better yet, is with the uh, temptations of Jesus. These are powerful, powerful stories. We could spend weeks just talking about the temptations themselves. But if you remember the chronology of Jesus, he's born, and the forces of darkness are already aligned against him. Herod's trying to kill him and ends up killing possibly 30 other children just to try to get to him. The forces of darkness are aligned against Christ. They flee down to Egypt to escape, and they eventually come back. And we only hear of Jesus then at the age 12, when he's down in Jerusalem with his parents during the Passover feast. And then there's a skipping in years, and then we find him showing up, and he is eventually baptized by John the Baptist there in the River Jordan. And we're actually going to see that in June, where Jesus was baptized. In fact, there's some contest between that and another site over on the Jordanian side. I've been to both of them. A lot of those ancient sites are so you know, difficult to find exactly where it is. There's some dispute about it. But nonetheless, there he is. And as you know, the Spirit comes down upon him. And the voice from heaven says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Then what we find immediately after that, the Gospel of Luke in particular emphasizes it, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And indeed, it is a wilderness there. The Judean wilderness is stark and rough and rugged. Uh, and Jesus is driven out there and on a 40-day fast. And in that, it says here that Satan confronts Jesus. It doesn't say that, that, that Jesus went out to find Satan. No, he is driven out into the wilderness, and while he's in the wilderness, Satan comes and tempts him. Now, it, the word here is the word Satan, uh, which is an English transliteration of a Hebrew word. The New Testament kept the Hebrew word for Satan, and it literally means adversary. Satan means adversary. Satan is adversarial. Or if you're an adversary, what does that presuppose? A standard by which you are against. So here is Christ, the standard of God, the goodness, the holiness, the righteousness of God, bringing redemption to the world. And immediately, as soon as his ministry starts, he is confronted. He is confronted by the adversary, the Satan. And so there he is in it, and it, it is a fascinating story. It doesn't really you know, describe much that's going on. It's mainly just it, it reports the dialogue that goes on between Satan and Christ. And uh, it's, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark just emphasizes the encounter, but does not specify what the three temptations are. Uh, Luke has a little bit of order change in two and three. But if you remember those, they are all temptations of power. They're all temptations of power. Turn stones to bread. Now think what you could do if you could do something like that. You could be even richer than a Russian oligarch. <laughs> uh, if you could turn stones to bread, what immense power you could have. I mean, you could feed the poor. Be like the goose that laid the golden egg. You'd have just an unlimited amount of resources that you could do things with. And if you were a good-hearted person, look all the good things you could do about that. But Jesus turned it down. You have to live by the, the Word of God alone. Then there's the temptation of, uh, of uh, going up to the temple and throwing himself down and letting the angels kept him, uh, I mean, uh, keep him from falling. And so that the whole world would know that all the heavenly forces are behind him, that everybody would come to him and fall down thinking, this, this is great, this is wonderful, has all the blessings of heaven here. And Jesus turned it down. And then there's the other temptation in which he's at this high pinnacle, and the Satan says, look, you can have all of these things here. The whole world could be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus turned it down. All three had to do with power. You know, I think one of the most radical aspects of the Christian understanding of God in Christ, as depicted throughout the New Testament, has to do with that very point. What do we think is power? What is real power? Satan was tempting Jesus with power of dominance, control, affluence, might, glory, and Jesus turned all that down. And Jesus turned it down to live as what? A suffering servant, a lamb taken to the slaughter, 
an innocent man crucified on the cross. Where is the real power of God? Is it seen in someone who can turn stones to bread? Or to have all the angels of heaven protect him? Or, or be the Lord over all the nations of the world? Where is the real power of God? The Apostle Paul tells us it's in Christ, the suffering of Christ. The challenge here for us as Christians is not to be you know, succumbed by the temptations of the evil one here. That's the real challenge. We want to turn Jesus into someone who said yes to the three temptations of, Jesus, of, the, of Satan. We want to turn Jesus into something that is all-powerful and mighty, just like a military commander or a ruler of the nations. But Jesus comes, well, as a suffering servant, riding on a donkey on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, and a week later he's crucified. That's the power of God. I think one of the great challenges that the New Testament issues all of us is that. Do we think power can be found in the suffering servant? Is exceeding love powerful enough to overcome the destructiveness of the dominating force of Satan? Do we really believe that love can change the world? Do we really believe that? So this really sets the stage from this point on in Jesus' encounters with evil. However, though, we do not hear of Satan anymore confronting Jesus. I have to admit, once again, I'm a little mystified by that. I'm not for sure why, but nonetheless, the New Testament does not record any more encounters between Satan and Jesus. From this point on, even though the, the, the name Beelzebub is brought up, and I'll talk about that in just a second, Jesus has multiple encounters with what's called the, the demonic. The demonic. The first encounter that Jesus has with the demonic is found um, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 4. And uh, it, it is one of the most famous episodes in Luke chapter 4, I, I mean in, in the Gospels about Jesus. And the setting of that stage in which he has this encounter with the, the demonic uh, is very instructive as well. Now, in Matthew's account, it is said in a general sense that Jesus went all through that area, the Galilean area, preaching the good news and healing. All right, so he has already gained a reputation as a builder as a constructor, as a healer, as one who brings peace, all right? And he's going around Jerusalem, I mean, going around Galilee and doing it. And then in the parallel in Mark, I mean, Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus preaching his first sermon. Now, we know that he is from, Laz I mean, Nazareth, and so everybody knew him. And as was the custom, all the men would come to the synagogue and someone would read from the scrolls. And you remember this. He reads from, of all things, Isaiah 61 and 58. Those passages talk about God's intended purposes for all things. Where God brings harmony and peace, there'll be the good news spread throughout the whole world. He reads those passages. And I suspect everybody in the synagogue were really familiar with those because those are well-known passages, very instructive for the faith of the Israelites. And Jesus reads from them. And then he sits down and says, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said all these things that Isaiah was predicting about the good news spread throughout the world and about the, the blind will see their sight and the, uh, the, the good news, I mean, and, and, excuse me, good news will be brought to the captives. 
Today it is starting. I'm starting what Isaiah predicted would happen to be at the conclusion, the end, the purpose of everything that God has for history. I'm starting it today. And, uh, you know, people are taken back by that. Uh, he then, you know, uh, sort of challenges them, and they're very disturbed by what he does, and they chase him off. And from there he goes to Capernaum. All right, so this might have been the same day. We're not really for sure. Nazareth is not that far, by the way, from Capernaum, no more than maybe 15, 20 miles to the Sea of Galilee. And there he is in Capernaum, and he goes to another synagogue, and it says this. Let me read this. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teachings, for his word had authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down into the midst, he came out of him, having done to him no harm. And they went, and they were all amazed, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports of him went out over every place to the surrounding Egypt. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that no one else had recognized that this man had a demon. He was in the synagogue. It doesn't say much about him, but I suspect everything was normal. Everything was predictable. Might have been just a you know, neighbor down the street, whatever, that would regularly go into the synagogue with all these other people. And they couldn't identify it. That the evil that was lurking him was subtle, hidden, devious. We don't know for sure, but the work of the demon is always destructive. And so this man, even though not known to be demonic, nonetheless was doing the work of evil. And nobody knew it. Evil can be devious. It can be subtle. It can come across looking very nice, very persuasive. It can seem like what we all ought to do, just like those temptations. Wouldn't, could you turn down those temptations, change stones to bread? It'd be hard to turn that down. That would be a benevolent thing to do. Look at all the good you could do if you had that kind of power. But it was actually diabolical to have that kind of power. And so when Jesus shows up in the synagogue and this diabolical person is in there, this demoniac as he's called, immediately the confrontation comes up. And he knows exactly who he is. And this is the first testimony outside of the voice from God to Father at baptism, this is my son, in which someone says, this is the Holy One of God. The demonic recognizes Jesus' divine ship more or sooner, earlier than people do. Why is that? Because it is a confrontation between good and evil. Evil exists in the world to destroy God's good work. The reason why there's this pernicious, sort of cancerous growth within human life, this kind of re- this tendency that just won't ever go away from us, to erode and, 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 and bring horror and terror and despair into human life and ruins people's lives and shatters us from any kind of wholesome goodness in our life. 
is always working against the good things that God has done. And when Jesus, the Son of God, the epitome of the goodness and righteousness of God, shows up in that synagogue, to use a hunting metaphor, he flushed out the, the demonic. He flushed it out. Goodness exposes evil. It exposes the work against the intentions, the holiness, the righteousness, the goodness of God in the world. And Jesus commands him to come out. There's no compromise. There's no sitting down and saying, look, you know, I, I think you can kind of redirect yourself and maybe even, you know, do some good in your own life. Look, I, I really think if you just sort of, you know, took a, you know, more walks and longer naps, you'd be okay. <laughs> it doesn't do that. It's a confrontation. There is no compromise with evil. There is none. And Jesus is teaching here. Now, I need to be careful at this point. What are we talking about when we talk about evil? Now, there is sin, no doubt about it. And uh, we're all sinners. And sometimes we do that accidentally, but most of the time we do that willfully. Just like the word harmatia, one of the Greek words for sin, means to miss the mark. It's like, there's the bullseye, well, I'm going to shoot over here. We, we do sin. We know what we shouldn't do, but we do it. And what we do, we know we shouldn't do it. That's part of us. That's part of our dilemma, part of our, our, our state of life, that no matter how hard we try, we can never redeem ourselves. Why? Because we are sinners. We live in a world, you know, this is a big theological term, but has inherited sin to it, original sin to it. The world is not the way it is supposed to be. And we're kind of ignorant of how to fix it but we all still know that we must do something right about it. And Christ comes and gives us that chance to do what is right. Okay, that's not evil. I don't think human sin is evil. The problem of evil is deeper than the misuse of our own freedom. What has brought so much harm in the world is, is much, much grievous, more grievous and pernicious than the harm that we have brought into the world. And that's bad enough. Look at it like this. This is a bad analogy, but it's, it helps a little bit. If I cut my hand right here with a knife, there'd be a cut and it would bleed, no doubt about it, and I need to sew it up. But what else could happen to that cut is an infection that comes in. The infection is not the cut. The infection wouldn't occur without the cut. And the infection can kill me as much as the cut. Did I lose you all that cutting stuff, like a cutting board? I think evil comes in and uses human weakness, uses human sin to do something far worse than what we could do. Now, I, I know, I, 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 forgive me if I get, get off into deep waters and all this, but think about the, the harm that has existed in the world since Cain slew Abel. We knew long ago as people in the world that war is bad, right? We knew that. We knew that when you bring nations against one another and you kill countless thousands and create immeasurable grief for hundreds and hundreds of years, the destruction of property and lives and all that, we knew that was wrong, didn't we? Yes, we all knew that was wrong. We've had enough evidence as humans to know we shouldn't be doing the things that we do. We know that. But what is it that we do? I'll just use this illustration that we're all living in right now with Ukraine. 
you probably have studied more about the conflict between <laughs> Russia and Ukraine than you ever have. And it, it is, it's a very complicated relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And they have legitimate differences. I can understand those. And there's been good and bad on both sides on this issue. But when Putin and others decided that, that they wanted to go to war, they added something to those differences. An infection came onto a wound. Violent hate came into a disagreement and difference. A willful destructiveness entered into that. That was more than just the fact, I don't like those people over there for what they have done for me. Something else is happening. And I know I may sound overly cynical in saying this, no matter how many PhDs we have in social science, or how many unbelievably Nobel Prize winning gifted scientists that we may have in the world, I ask this rhetorically, do you think they would be good enough to keep us from doing those sort of things again. And I don't think so. Like I said, I hate to be cynical about it, but we are dealing with a force that is in a sense, in some ways, we're outmatched. We really are, we're outmatched. We're dealing with something that willfully, directly wants to destroy things. And that's the force of evil, and Jesus confronts that, and he knows he has to confront it. He knows if he is going to fulfill that which Isaiah had prophesied, that the good news would be brought to the world, and that there'd be harmony and righteousness throughout all the world. No more tears, no more death, where the glory of God you know, is experienced from the north, the south, the east, and the west. For all that to happen, this sinister force will have to be overcome, and Jesus' ministry starts with that. And he goes in a number of occasions, and then all of a sudden, these demons break out on him to try to prevent him from doing that very thing. Okay, that's the first encounter with the demonic. The next one occurs across the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, if I had a map up here, is there a map in this room? All right, well, here, here's my, my map here on the wall. Just imagine this. All right. Here's the Sea of Galilee, you know, River Jordan. Here's the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem's right there. Nazareth's right there. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum runs there. You can get on a boat, and you can go all the way across. It's, it, it's not a sea, it's actually a pretty big lake. And you go all the way across, and over this area is the Gadarene area. So he goes across the Sea of Galilee, and he shows up there at, at, uh, at, in Gadarene, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There's that interesting episode when he is going across the sea, the storm breaks up, and he calms the sea. Instead of everyone dr drowning there, he saves their life by calming the sea. And when he comes to that, this is what happens. When he comes to Gadarene, this is found in Matthew chapter 8. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demoni demoniacs met him. They're coming at him. He's flushed them out. Coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one would pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many swine was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go, 
And they came out and went into the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything and what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their neighborhood. <coughs> Uh, I have to admit, I'm not, I don't quite understand the role the swines play in all this. Maybe, maybe someone, Mason, do you ever study anything interesting about why the swine were picked here? They're unclean animals. Yes. Okay. So the Romans would eat pork, and so they had a pig farm there, but the Jews wouldn't. So that's why they're there. Well, that's a reasonable explanation. Okay, I'll give you an A for that. <laughs> Mason's a former student. Uh, it is kind of a strange story. It's a little unique. You don't find that kind of description of any of these encounters in the same way as this one. But to me, what's really interesting about this story, though, are the people there. When Jesus comes in, they run him off. This is too much for us. You know, we thought we had everything under control. We could live with these people as long as they stay out there in the tombs. That's okay. We'll just walk around them. But Jesus goes and he expels those demons. And he does something that they don't understand. That's not part of their plan, part of their prediction of things, how they manage and control things. And Jesus is in some ways always upsetting things. You can imagine with that first encounter with the demoniac there in Capernaum, he was just a regular guy in the synagogue. And Jesus shows that he was actually demon-possessed. And they must have all thought, we thought we understood all this. Or you now, do you have a demon? Do you have a demon? And so they too probably were very unsettled by this, just as the people there in the gathering were unsettled by it. And so I guess part of what we ought to see in this is that Jesus' ministry was never to go around and just make everybody feel happy about things or feel good about themselves or to have some sort of vision that it's all working out just right. These people didn't want him around because they knew they were dealing with a force that they couldn't control. They were having to confront an issue they had absolutely no way to solve. And Jesus came and solved it. And in doing it, it, it shook them to their core. That they knew now, without someone like Jesus, there's no way they could handle this kind of issue again. And so they were terrified, and they ran him off for doing that. They made him leave. All right, there is an episode here uh, with a mute demoniac. This is in Matthew chapter 9 starting with verse 32. Uh, there are a couple of interesting features about this. It spills over into another episode, too. But what's interesting about it is how the Pharisees react to it. This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a dumb demoniac, i got to hurry, was brought. And when the demon had, had been cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Elsewhere, that prince of demons is called the Beelzebub. A similar, a similar episode is found 
in cha Mark, um, excuse me, Matthew chapter 12. And what's so significant about that, a similar episode in which it is a, this time it's a blind and, and um, mute person who is possessed by a demon, and Jesus expels that demon out, and the Pharisees come and say, well, you're doing that by the power of Beelzebub. Now, what's interesting about that, Jesus had been going around, and as Matthew said, healing all of them, but now he heals one, and the, and the Pharisees say, well, you're doing this by Beelzebub. The word Beelzebub has some roots back in Canaanite religion. A Canaanite god might have been called Beelzebub in relationship to Baal. Don't know for sure. Uh, but it was translated as the prince of demons. Beelzebub could be a sort of name for Satan here, but the prince of demons. Now, in, when Jesus responds to the Pharisees, when they say that you're doing this expelling, you're healing this man from this demon here. You're doing the work of Beelzebub. Jesus' reply is very telltale for us. He does a little bit of logic. All right? The logic is, if Beelzebub is evil and I'm expelling evil, then I'm working against Beelzebub. I cannot be working with Beelzebub if I'm expelling the forces of destruction. Now, what's so telltale about that is they are mutually exclusive. God and evil are, are mutually exclusive. They're not in cahoots with one another than this. God will never use Beelzebub to work the works of God. Christ is not in allegiance with evil to work the works of God. And you see, I'm being a little emphatic about that because there are some theologies that will argue that God made evil and uses evil to do redemption. I, I, I know I'm touching some tender toes and saying it this way, but uh, I find that just incoherent in the same way that Jesus found it incoherent when the Pharisees said, what you're doing is by Beelzebub. And Jesus' logic, well, if, if Beelzebub is working destruction and I'm expelling demons, then I'm working against Beelzebub. God does not use evil to work redemption. God overcomes evil. God confronts it. This horror that exists in the world, which sometimes is very overt, sometimes very subtle and hidden, this kind of corrupting, inimical, diabolical tendency that erupts around us all the time, that someone goes off and just slaughters a bunch of people mindlessly, needlessly. Sometimes people wage war just for sort of personal gain or for uh, frivolous and, and intemperate differences that they have with one another. Have you ever studied the cause of World War I? Read, read the cause of World War I and make you want to scream. They were all neighbors, all Christians. It was a misunderstanding over a certain treaty, and before you knew it, at the end of it, what? 60 million people died. What happens? Where is this coming from? And so Jesus is not going to use the forces of darkness to bring light into the world. That's, that's his point. And I think that's very instructive for the way we think about what God is doing. Christ is at work to overcome the evil of the world. All right, uh, there are a couple little episodes here about the, the disciples also being empowered by Christ to go out and expel the demons that come back. But I want to conclude with one little story. 
and it's found in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, it is the last recorded encounter with a demon. And in it, what we find is there's a man uh, who has a son, and the son is, uh, yes, I know I'm keeping you a little late. I, I can do this in a minute and a half. Uh, it, is, it is said that the son is epileptic. And epilepsy is a real mental issue, no doubt about it. And there are physical causes for epilepsy. All right. But as the story unfolds, though, uh, both Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three of them then, say that that was an unclean spirit in him that was causing the epilepsy. Now, if this were just a medical problem, then the problem would have been solved by curing the epilepsy. But what Jesus does, though, is to cast out the demon. Here the demon was causing the epilepsy. You can be epileptic and not demonically possessed. But here the one possessed by the demon was causing the epilepsy, causing harm and destruction to this one. And Jesus expels this. Uh, here's, here's the interesting, there are a lot of interesting things, but in conclusion I'll say this. Uh, interesting point about this particular episode. Uh, evidently, other people had tried to expel this demon out of this boy and were unsuccessful. And the disciples come up to Jesus, how can we do this? How, you did it, we cannot, how can we do this? And Jesus' response, He first of all says, you, you lack faith. And then he says, and this is only in Mark's version though, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. But by prayer. Not bombs, not sticks, not bats, not bullets, not hate, not, you know, invidious anger. This one is only driven out by prayer. Prayer is a weapon against evil. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And we should believe the same thing. That the Christian response to the darkness of the world, to the evil that lurks around, that is always wanting to, you know, to, to put poison on a wound or gasoline on a fire or to add hatred between just sort of natural differences. This kind of relentless sort of assault that we all experience in human history. Our weapon against it is not to be more assaulting, not to have more destruction, not to have bigger, you know, fist to overcome those forces of violence and destruction of the world, but our weaponry is prayer. The spiritual exercise of prayer is a way by which we can thwart the work of evil in the world. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what the disciples were not showing at that time. And so it's a strong injunction for us. 20 seconds. What can we say about all this? Jesus was dealing with evil. Part of Jesus' agenda to bring redemption to the world was to overcome it. And what we have as Christians here is the power of Christ that is given to us in the hope of the world in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, in the exceeding love that is shown in Jesus Christ, and through our prayer, which is more than just sort of backing off and retreating from the conflict, but actually bearing the conflict itself in our own spiritual nature. We have to be convinced. And I think this is, this is the command that is given to the church 
and we just need to believe in it. We have to be convinced that as people of God, when we come together and pray, that there's power to overcome the evil of the world in that prayer. And this is the hope of the world. All right, I'll close this with a prayer. O God, in whom our hope and trust is found, we ask of Thee, O Lord, that You come into the world in which there is great darkness and great hate and violence. You come to the conflict in the Ukraine and bring peace, O Lord. We pray to expel all that which lurks there, that destroys and harms. Help us, Lord, to be instruments of peace and bring true power into the world. And this I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.